from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Those were the words of a very famous man who had been recently ousted from the British Parliament. His name was Winston Churchill. This speech took place on March 5th, 1946 in Fulton, Missouri. And Churchill was warning the United States about the upcoming Soviet threat. Today what we want to do is we're going to discuss the, th- the current threat from the Russians in the Ukraine, but in particular we're going to go through a document that was sent in 1946 called the Long Telegram. The Long Telegram was sent by George Kennan on February 22, 1946, only about a week and a half before Churchill's speech. At that time, he was the U.S. ambassador to the Kremlin. As such, he had the closest connection to the thoughts, feelings, and attitudes of Stalinist Russia. So we're going to break that all down today, and we're going to go through the long telegram. I'm going to be doing a lot of reading from the actual telegram itself, and so hopefully you'll get a very clear idea of the magnitude and the importance of this particular telegram, as it has forecasted all of the stuff that has happened in the last 70-plus years since this time was, uh, since this telegram was written. And it also offers insights into what we should do today to con- to tamp down on the Russian aggression. Hope you guys will stick with me. When George Kennan wrote the long telegram, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics was under the leadership of Joseph Stalin. This was until his death in 1953. During World War II, the Russians had sustained a tragic loss of life, and oftentimes the numbers have been estimated at greater than 20 million soldiers and civilians. Prior to and throughout this time, Stalin himself additionally orchestrated the displacement of what is now being called a genocide of the Kulaks, which was a class of higher income farmers within Russia. It's estimated that close to 6 to 8 million people were in some way displaced through execution, forced labor, deportation, famine, massacres, and interrogation by Stalin's henchmen. As recorded by Stanford University, it is to be noted that this reign of terror did not end with World War II. In fact, it can be argued that the survival of the USSR was dependent upon it. This was the background surrounding the creation of the Long Telegram. Now, the Long Telegram is separated into five sections. The first being the basic features of the post-war Soviet outlook. Second, the background of this outlook. The third its projection in practical policy on an official level, fourth, its projection on an unofficial level, fifth, practical deductions from standpoint of the U.S. policy. What we're going to do is we're going to go through each section of uh, this document, and I'm going to pick out the most important things that I could quote from it directly. I want you to hear in the original words of the telegram so you can see how accurate this is and not get a sense that perhaps I might be flexing it to fit my own needs. And so I'm going to read exactly what it says in the telegram, and I'm also going to include the PDF file for this telegram uh, or the link to it in the description notes for this podcast. So let's get into section one. The Basic Features of the Post-War Soviet Outlook. From this point on, I will be reading from the telegram directly with a few comments here and there. Keep in mind, as I read through the telegram, certain small words, as in ifs, ands, does, and stuff, stuff like that, have been left out. And so if the sentences 
need a little bit of restructuring, I'll try to do that along the way. But there might be some sentences that come out just a little bit funny because they're missing those connecting words. So let's get started here with the first section. This is taken directly out of the intro of the telegram and in this first section where we are discussing the basic features of the post-war Soviet outlook. Quote, the USSR still lives in an antagonistic capitalist encirclement with which in the long run, there will be no permanent peaceful coexistence. As stated by Stalin in 1927 to a delegation of American workers, Quote, in course of further development of international revolution, there will emerge two centers of world significance. A socialist center drawing to itself the countries which tend towards socialism and a capitalist center drawing to itself the countries which tend towards capitalism. Battle between these two centers for command of the world economy will decide the fate of capitalism and of communism in the entire world. In Stalin's perspective, he knew that the Soviet state could not coexist with the West. Because the Soviet Union was only as powerful as it was feared, the Soviets could not allow the mindset of the free West to permeate their constituents. As such, another quote, Soviet efforts and those of Russia's friends abroad must be directed towards deepening and exploiting of differences and conflicts between capitalist powers. If these eventually deepen into an imperialist war, this war must be turned into revolutionary upheavals within the various capitalist countries. Additionally, democratic progressive elements abroad are to be utilized to bring pressure to bear on capitalist governments along the lines agreeable to Soviet interests. Section 1 establishes that from the Soviet point of view, a conflict between the Eastern and Western powers is inevitable and there will be no resolution until one is destroyed. This is very important because this is something that continues till today and this is part of my arguments that says that the Cold War never actually ended is that for a long time during the actual Cold War, what we call from 1946 uh, or so till 1991, during that time, uh, a lot of things didn't happen. And a lot of uh, one of the reasons why it stayed cold was because neither country knew what to do with the other. But there was also polar opposite perspectives going on because the West could survive and coexist with the East, but the East could not survive or or coexist with the West for a number of reasons that we're about to get into. On to section two, the background of this aforementioned outlook. In this area of the telegram, Kennan switches his directive to point out who the actual enemy of the West really is. Is it the actual people of Russia or is it the state, otherwise called the party line, that controls them? Here are his thoughts. Quote, the party line does not represent the actual people of Russia. By and large, the people of Russia are friendly to the outside world, eager for experience of it, eager to possessing, eager above all to live in peace and enjoy fruits of their own labor. But the party line is binding for the outlook and conduct of the people, those who make up the apparatus of power, the party, secret police, and government, and is exclusively with these that we have to deal so there's the answer. According to Kennan, the people of the Soviet Union do not in and of themselves desire conflict with the West. Rather, they are pushed into it by the state. This applies to today as we're going through, as we're dealing with this Ukraine crisis. Who is actually the perpetrator of this crisis? 
Kennan then makes the point that the foundation of the state's belief that the East and West cannot mutually survive is unfounded. Please note, this is a direct quote, that premises on which this party line is based are, for the most part, simply not true. Experience has shown that peaceful and mutually profitable coexistence of capitalist and socialist states is entirely possible. Being that George Kennan was the U.S. ambassador to Moscow at the time, of all people, he should be familiar with the situation. So to summarize, if not provoked by forces of intolerance and subversion, the capitalist world of today is quite capable of living at peace with itself and with Russia. Here's another quote. Falseness of these premises, each one of which predates recent war, was amply demonstrated by that conflict itself. Anglo-American differences did not turn out to be major differences in the, of the Western world. Capitalist countries, other than those of Axis, showed no disposition to solve their differences by joining in crusade against the USSR, instead of imperialist war turning into civil wars and revolution. USSR found itself obliged to fight side by side with capitalist powers for an avowed community of aims. Then Kennan gets to the point. From where does the Kremlin's view of the world originate? Here it is. At the bottom of the Kremlin's neurotic view of world affairs is traditional and instinctive Russian sense of insecurity. Originally, this was insecurity of a peaceful agricultural people trying to live on a vast exposed plain in the neighborhood of fierce nomadic peoples. To this was added, as Russia came into contact with economically advanced West, fear of more competent, more powerful, more highly organized societies in that area. But this latter type of insecurity was one which afflicted rather Russian rulers than Russian people. Rule was relatively archaic in form, fragile and artificial in its psychological foundation, unable to stand comparison or contact with political systems of Western countries. For this reason, they have always feared foreign penetration, feared direct contact between Western world and their own, feared what would happen if Russians learns the truth about the world without or if foreigners learns the truth about the world within. And they have learned to seek security only in patient but deadly struggle for total destruction of rival power, never in compacts or compromises with it. It was no coincidence that Marxism, which has smoldered ineffectively for half a century in Western Europe, caught hold and ablazed for the first time in Russia. Only in this land, which had never known a friendly neighbor or indeed any tolerant equilibrium of separate powers, either internal or international, could a doctrine thrive which viewed economic conflicts of society as insoluble by peaceful means. After establishment of a Bolshevist regime, Marxist dogma, rendered even more truculent and intolerant by Lenin's interpretation, became a perfect vehicle for sense of insecurity which the Bolsheviks, even more than precious Russian rulers, were afflicted. Now we get to the tactics of the Soviet Union. Consider what happened just on Monday when the Russians announced that they were, there would be a ceasefire so civilians could evacuate, and then they proceeded to break their own ceasefire and attack the evacuating civilians. In the name of Marxism, they sacrificed every single ethical value in their methods and tactics. Today, they cannot dispense with it. It is a fig leaf for their moral and intellectual respectability. Without it, 
they could, would stand before history at best as only the last of that long succession of cruel and wasteful Russian rulers who have relentlessly forced country on to ever new heights of military power in order to guarantee external security of their internally weak regimes. This is why Soviet purposes must always be solemnly clothed in trappings of Marxism and why no one should underrate the importance of dogma in Soviet affairs. This thesis provides justification for that increase of military and police power of the Russian state, or that isolation of Russian population from the outside world, and for that fluid and constant pressure to extend limits of Russian police power, which are together the natural and instinctive urges of the Russian rulers. Kennan then digs deeper into the heart of the Soviet leaders. The very disrespect of Russians for objective truth, indeed their disbelief in ex existence, leads them to view all stated facts as instruments for furtherance of one ulterior purpose or another. This brings to mind an article that I read just yesterday, according to Fox News. A Russian POW, Lieutenant Colonel Askatov Dmitry Mikhailovich, sorry for the pronunciation on that, that's kind of, uh, it's not my specialty claimed that his forces this this colonel claimed that his forces quote were led to believe that they were invading the country that is of ukraine in this this is this uh happened past in this past week they were led to believe that they were invading the country because quote nationalist nazis have seized power mikhailovich reported quote that ukraine's territory is dominated by a fascist re regime this is according to a Fox News article. He continued saying, You are in a tense situation going against your own commander, but this is a genocide. The people are just killed. He stated that he would go to jail or do whatever he deserves. As we heard in our last podcast with Putin's speech containing various lies about the Ukraine and the nature of this war, it is easy to see that what Kennan is speaking of in the telegram is still quite true today. Though we might have a different paradigm, we're not dealing with the Soviet Union anymore. The Russian Federation that currently exists has so many parallels, and in fact, when it was formed, most of the people in control of the Russian parliament that existed in 1991, it actually was abolished in 1993, were all former communists and Soviets. And so you are looking at it, you're working with a system today that is different in name, but works the same in fact. And so we're, as we read through this stuff about the Soviet Union, keep that in mind that all the things that are applied here in this telegram are still applicable. Now we are on to part three, a projection of the Soviet outlook and practical policy on an official level. Let's hear from George. Quote, policy promulgated on both planes will be calculated to serve basic policies outlined in part one. As a reminder, those policies were outlined as 1. Exploiting the differences between capitalist countries to create international strife and 2. Infiltrates the democratic progressive elements of Western government to create internal conflict. On the official level of Russian operations, they will do the following. Quote, Wherever it is considered timely and promising, efforts will be made to advance official limits of Soviet power. To this end... 
Russians will participate officially in international organizations where they see the opportunity of extending Soviet power or of inhibiting or diluting the power of others. Moscow sees in the United Nations organization not the mechanism for a permanent and stable world society founded on mutual interest and aims of all nations, but an area in which aims just mentioned can be favorably pursued. As long as the United Nations organization is considered here to serve this purpose... Soviets will remain in it, but if at any time they come to the conclusion that it is serving to embarrass or frustrate their aims for power expansion, and if they see better prospects for pursuit of these aims along other lines, they will not hesitate to abandon the United Nations organization. Okay, so a lot of words right there. Basically what he's saying is that the Soviets will join the United Nations as long as it is helpful to them and then as soon as they see that they are, are not being served by the United Nations, they will leave it and or they'll work against it. Now, I'm starting to feel like a broken record over all this, but you can see the parallels between then and today. Nothing really has changed. On February 25th of this year, the Associated Press reported that Russia vetoed the United Nations demand that Russia stop attacking Ukraine. How ridiculous is that? If you have a country that is still in membership with the United Nations, that as it is actively launching various weapons into another nation, they can still have the right to vote against their being uh, ordered to stop? This is a sham organization. It's really stagnant, and there's nothing that is really helpful about the UN at this point. But the Russians will always continue to use it as long as it helps them to further their influence. Next quote, toward colonial areas and backward or dependent peoples, Soviet policy, even on official level, will be directed towards weakening of power and influence and contacts of advanced Western nations. On theory that insofar as this policy is successful, there will be created a vacuum which will favor communist Soviet penetration. Soviet pressure for participation in trusteeship agreements thus represents, in my opinion, a desire to be in a position to complicate and inhibit exertion of Western influence in such points rather than to provide major channels for exerting Soviet power. So just the fact that they are able to get in there and, uh, and counter this vote is the whole point. If they're able to get in there and cause strife between these other nations within the UN, then it still serves their purposes. He continues, with respect to cultural collaboration, lip service will likewise be rendered to desirability and deepening of cultural contracts between people, but this will not in practice be interpreted in any way which would weaken the security position of Soviet peoples. Actual manifestations of Soviet policy in this respect will be restricted to arid channels of closely shepherded official visits and functions with sh with superabundance of vodka and speeches and dearth of permanent effects. This actually rings true of the uh, various missions that Putin has gone on in past years, uh, both in his, uh, his time meeting with President Trump as well as with other dignitaries throughout the world in the last uh, five or six years. It, there's always a, a careful level of protection around him, as is normal for government officials, but it's to the point where these people, these other outside governments, are not allowed to interface with the Russian peoples. They're insulated. And so we've been seeing that with the news 
news that's been going on in Ukraine today. Uh, it talks more about this in just a minute, but essentially, if you look at, uh, there's actually different websites you can go to right now, or if you get on Instagram right now, there's even one that was shared, uh, I believe, by PragerU the other day. And essentially, it's just a video of them going around and interviewing people in Russia and showing them pictures of the Ukraine and what is going on. And the Russian people, a lot of them, don't even know it. And so they basically accept that the whole world is going to punish them, like Putin was saying last week, through sanctions, based on the fact that they do nothing because they don't know what's actually, what their government is actually up to. So it's quite uh, it's quite dramatic and quite interesting to see that uh, the the government of the Russia uh, of the Russians will pay lip service to being a government that is uh, good to their people and is a, a a trying to become a first world country in the world, and yet they do all of this and then they give they feed their their own people uh, various layers of misinformation. Part 4, the Russian policies on the unofficial level. The main focus will be the cent inner central core of communist parties in other countries. While many of persons who compose this category will also appear and act in unrelated public capacities, they are in reality working closely together as an underground op operating directorate of world communism, concealed, tightly coordinated, and directed by Moscow. A wide variety of national associations or bodies which can be dominated or influenced by such penetration. These include labor unions, youth leagues, women's organizations, racial societies, cultural groups, liberal magazines, publishing houses, etc. It is of note on these points that the Black Lives Matter organization's founders have previously identified themselves as Marxists, and that the New York Times 1619 project contains an alternate history of the United States which sheds a false light on American history. The 1619 project has now infiltrated some public school systems. Now, I should clarify, while I'm not insinuating that either of these programs are controlled by the Kremlin, I do contend that they are a piece of the puzzle when we look at the destabilization of American supremacy over the last two decades, just as the Kremlin would like. It is mentioned earlier that one of the sole goals of the Soviet Union is just to create problems within capitalist countries. And so when you look at these Marxist organizations or these narratives that are being taught to the United States and to the students within the United States that are uh, controversial and that creates problems simply because on some fronts they're abjectly false and on other points they're just designed to be divisive, you end up with this narrative and this activity that creates strife and then serves the purposes of the Kremlin directly. Kennan's next warning of unofficial Russian infiltration and covert collaboration with other degenerate governments goes like this. Governments or governing groups willing to lend themselves to Soviet purposes in one degree or another, such as the present Bulgarian and Yugoslav governments, North Persian regime, and Chinese communists, etc. The collaborative effort of these countries will work to undermine the general political and strategic potential for major Western powers. Efforts will be made in such countries to disrupt national self-confidence, to hamstring measures of national defense, to increase social and industrial unrest, as I was just mentioning a minute ago, to simulate all forms of disunity, 
All persons with grievances, whether economic or racial, will be urged to seek redress, not in mediation and compromise, but in defiant, violent struggle for destruction of other elements of society. Here, poor will be set against rich, black against white, young against old, newcomers against established residents, etc. Does this remind you of any recent events in 2020? Once again, I'm not insinuating that the Kremlin is behind all of this, as I believe that would greatly overstate their power in the current world. However, I do believe that these recent events are a symptom of Western decline that the Soviets desired. Next quote. Where individual governments stand in the path of Soviet purposes, pressure will be brought for their removal from office. Now, here's an interesting twist. In May of 2020, the New York Post released a leaked recording of then-former Vice President Joe Biden on the phone with the current president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko. In the phone call, you can hear Biden dangling a $1 billion loan guarantee before the Ukrainian president. The only caveat is that in order to get it, Poroshenko must remove the current prosecutor general, Viktor Shokin, who at the time was investigating Burisma, a Ukrainian power company who had previously placed Hunter Biden on their board of directors and paid him, quote, millions of dollars for seemingly nothing in return. Aside from Biden's interference, it is also documented that prior to this event, the prosecutor's office had been offered a $7 million bribe to shut down the case. This information is based on an 87-page document created by the United States Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs in cooperation with the U.S. Senate Committee on Finance Majority Staff Reports. A link will be provided in the podcast notes to this document. Here's the actual audio released by the New York Times. Assuming that uh, um, uh, there is a new government and a, uh, a new prosecutor general, uh, I am prepared to do a public signing of the commitment for the billion dollars. And despite of the fact that we didn't have any corruption charges, don't have any information about he doing something wrong. I especially ask him, no, it was the day before yesterday. I especially ask him to resign. Congratulations on installing the new prosecutor general. It's going to be critical uh, for him to work quickly to repair the damage Shokin did. And, I'm a man of my word, I, um, and that now that the new prosecutor general's in place, we're ready to move forward in signing that new $1 billion loan guarantee. The point behind me showing you this audio is not necessarily to Im- simply throw dirt on our current president. However, I did want to include this information as it is characteristic of shady governments and crooked politicians. It is interesting to note that Kennan wrote the long telegram to expose the Soviets, but we are now finding that very similar activity is going on right under our noses. We are getting close to the end of the telegram. As you can hear, it is indeed very long. I have skipped many paragraphs of contents that is worth a read. The link to the PDF, as I mentioned earlier, will be also included in the podcast notes. 
To close out the telegram, Kennan reaches the fifth section. In this section, he offers his suggestions as to how we should deal with the Kremlin. It is very arguable that the recommendations listed here were effectively employed by President Ronald Reagan to destroy the Soviet Union. I would argue that the solutions listed here are also the strategies that should be employed today to disarm the current Russian regime. Here is his first point. Soviet power, unlike that of Hitlerite Germany, is neither schematic nor adventuristic. It does not work by fixed plans. It does not take unnecessary risks, impervious to a logic of reason, and is highly sensitive to logic of force. For this reason, it can easily withdraw and usually does when strong resistance is encountered at any point. Thus, if the adversary has sufficient force and makes clear his readiness to use it, he rarely has to do so. If situations are properly handled, there need be no prestige engaging showdowns. Simply stated, I believe that Kennan's point here is that America must maintain peace through strength, as Ronald Reagan put it. When the United States is seen as weak by its adversaries, that is when they will attack. On to his next point. Gauged against the world as a whole, the Soviets are still by far the weaker force. Thus, their success will really depend on the degree of cohesion, firmness, and vigor which Western world can muster. Here is how we can challenge the Kremlin and be victorious in the end. These are a couple of points that Kennan made, and I'm actually leaving out a few of them. We're focusing on uh, two on the points two through five, as the first one is sem- somewhat repetitive. Here we go. Quote, two, we must see that our public is educated to the realities of, Russian situ- of the Russian situation. I cannot overemphasize the importance of this. The press cannot do this alone. It must be done mainly by the government, which is necessarily more experienced and better informed on practical problems involved. 3. Much depends on the health and vigor of our own society. World communism is like a malignant parasite which feeds only on diseased tissue. To this point at which domestic and foreign policies meet, Every courageous and incisive measure to solve internal problems of our own society, to improve self-confidence, discipline, morale, and community spirit of our own people is a diplomatic victory over Moscow worth a thousand diplomatic notes and joint communiques. If we cannot abandon fatalism and indifference in the face of deficiencies of our own society, Moscow will profit. Moscow cannot help profiting by them in its foreign policies. So I'm going to stop here for just a second. This is talking about being a cohesive culture within the United States. If we can build that, then we can stave off Russian aggression. Four, we must formulate and put forward for other nations a much more positive and constructive picture of sort of world we would like to see than we have put forward in the past. We have to create a vision for what we want the world to look like. And we should be the embodiment of that. Five. Finally, we must have courage and self-confidence to cling to our own methods and conceptions of human society. After all, the greatest danger that can befall us in coping with this problem of Soviet communism is that we shall allow ourselves to become like those with whom we are coping. Canon. So that's the end of the long telegram, and like I said, I skipped a lot of 
pieces of this document just for the sake of brevity, but I tried to hit all of the most important points that I could that I could surmise. I would recommend that you go and read this for yourself because especially taking it in a on your own and reading through it word by word, it things will jump out to you that you don't get by just listening to it. But it's a incredibly important document and I think my final argument for did the world Cold War ever end uh, could be summarized like this. In 1946, George Kennan wrote the long telegram, and it accurately present, represents exactly what we're seeing today. And so we can see say that essentially the Russian Federation that exists today is the same as the Soviet Union that existed then. And so since they are the same, this war, even though the first name was abolished in 1991 is still just as cold as ever and it still continues to this day but we're actually seeing it i say it's cold we're actually seeing it heat up as of late so hopefully that in the next few months things will develop and that we'll be able to accurately implement the solutions given to us by kennan so we can stave off this additional russian aggression that that seems to be imminent Thank you so much for listening. Again, my name is Donnie from Oxus Practical Defense. And what we believe is that the best practical defense is built around a mindset of understanding the context in which you are working. So in order to build your best defense, we have to understand history and what has happened before and what is likely to happen in the future so we can make good, practical, and accurate decisions for our current situation as to how best defend against external threats. So thank you guys so much for listening. I think that understanding the history of this telegram helps us to really better prepare for defending ourselves and our country in the next few months. Thank you so much and have a great rest of your day.